Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Todd Sharpville. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
top done, I'll take a red-headed one Red-headed one Take a red-headed one To get the dirty job done So listen up, study, know your life been wasted Till you got down on your knees and tasted a red-headed one Ties rotated by a red-headed woman Red-headed woman Takes a red-headed woman To get the dirty job done from his brand new release and we got todd on the line right now hey todd how are you i'm good thanks how's it going i'm going pretty well now this is the first time you've come on our show and we always like to get things rolling by giving our fans this opportunity to kind of really get to know an artist so give us the story of todd sharpville oh man that's a that's a lot to pack into <laughs> a sound vital too um, I started playing semi-professionally through my teens uh, back in the 80s. Uh, my first album came out in the early 90s. 
um, I've been a, a familiar face on the on the the blues circuit, but um, I've also dabbled in many many other things and collaborated and worked with many other people. Um, I guess started out um, putting together backing bands uh, in the in Europe, ending backing bands for folks like Hubert Sumlin from uh, from Honey Wolf's band, um, Ike Turner, uh, Byver Smith, um, all kinds of visiting blues artists. Um, and kind of fell into it from there. Okay. Well, you know, every artist um, seems to have that crossroad moment. You know, that that moment where several uh, career paths are laid before you, and you chose music as as a career path. What was that moment for you where music seemed to be the way to go? Oh, uh, when I was 12 years old and I heard my first blues record. Um, I was a, a crazy little retro kid um, between the age of about seven and, and 12, 13. Um, was really uh, hooked on 50s rock and roll and wanted to explore the blues um, on the back of early Elvis and understanding that his, his influences came straight from the blues. Um, and yeah, my 12th birthday wanted a, a blues record. I was allowed to pick anything out of the uh, the blues section in the in the local record store, and I just stumbled on a, on an album cover. I didn't know what I was looking for, but um, an album cover that, that that looked appealing to me and kind of said blues to me. And it was a Freddie King album. Oh, okay. Uh, and the third way through the you know third way through the the uh, the middle of the third song, um, it was like an epiphany moment of. I, I never understood that guitars could do quite what <laughs> what I was hearing them do in this Freddie King album. Um, and at that moment, straight away knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play guitar and I wanted to, to embody <laughs> this sound that Freddie King was putting out. Um, okay. And ran upstairs excitedly to my mum and dad, waving the album about, saying, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been scary. For them, yeah. <laughs> well, they 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 thought I was going to be a doctor up until then, you know. <laughs> Boy, there's a dramatic shift. Now, yeah. Um, yeah. let's talk about the new release. Um, what was your inspiration for putting this particular release out? Um, <laughs> I started writing a song, which turned out to be the album uh, title, um, and. Upon sort of sitting back and, and listening to what I've, I've written and, and, and studying it a little bit, um, realized that I was writing about you know, an experience 16, 17 years ago, um, back in time when I had a, a breakdown and ended up in a mental hospital for a couple of months. Um, and I found I was I just written a song explaining the experience in the hospital, um, and you know, amusedly um, then found myself. Over the, you know, a, a relatively small, considered period of time, writing a few more songs that were explaining, you know, the run up to that situation, the situation itself, and what's kind of taken me from there to here. Um, but it's, uh, it's funny how these things can happen retrospectively. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about you as a songwriter. Every songwriter uh, has their way of, of tapping into that muse and getting those gears going. What is your process when you sit down to begin to write? 
Um, to be honest, it completely varies. I mean, it's uh, songs are like children. They they're all born in, in miraculously different ways. Some are easy, quick, uh, write themselves, and others, you know, you have to put in a draw, and they they <laughs> um, you know they they give birth at a much slower pace over a lot, much more concerted period of time. If, if you're giving them all, you know, the the sense of space that that, that they should all have. Um, I found over the years that it's, you know, it's a bad idea rushing a song sometimes when it's when you know deep, deep down that it's still not ready. Um, and each song will find its moment to speak to you and, and decide to express itself and decide to, to be born. Um, so they all completely vary. I mean, there, there are, there's a duet on the album um, with my old friend Larry McRae, who called me when I was uh, in London making plans to fly to Rhode Island to record the album. Um, at Duke Robillard studio, uh, Lake West, uh, in uh, West Greenwich, Rhode Island. And um, Larry uh, said, I've got a couple of days off on my schedule. I could fly over from Detroit to Rhode Island to hang with you um, so we can see each other because we hadn't seen each other in, in quite some time and have a proper catch-up. Um, and then, of course, the moment I put down the phone, I knew that I was going to, no, I mean, if Larry's going to come to the studio, I ought to, we ought to do something together. We've never recorded together. We've been friends for 30 years. Um, and immediately the chorus, um, lyrically and musically kind of hit me within a few seconds of putting down the phone. Um, and, uh, the, the phrasing, uh, of the, of the musical phrasing for the verses that kind of took care of itself over the coming days, but the actual lyrics, uh, for the verses, um, I couldn't think of anything that could best describe uh, or, or fit that space. I knew that the song had to be an ode to our friendship. Um, um, suddenly I'm, I'm writing to, to, to my own brief, effectively. Um, the chorus is all about the, uh, the, the joie de vivre nature of our friendship. We're kind of like uh, Kermit the Frog and Fozzie Bear when we get together and always have been. So the chorus is a joyful celebration of our friendship. Um, but the verses, I didn't know what to do until Larry flew over and I thought I'd just leave it to the ether, have, have a, uh, a catch up with Larry, we'll, we'll go out, have a few drinks, we'll catch up, we'll, we'll sit, we'll jam, we'll do all the things we normally do when we get together. But I'll wake up like an hour earlier than I've got to wake Larry up to do the session. Um, and it will come to me, I'm sure, after I spend an evening imbibing his company. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I kind of left it to trust it to the ether and woke up an hour early and within 10 or 15 minutes the verses had written themselves and they were all about the ups and downs I mean, the, the, the trials and tribulations that Larry and I have individually um, endured over the, the, the period of our friendship um, with the counterbalance of that being that the, the chorus counterbalance that the joyfulness of the friendship is, is what helps <laughs> steer us through, the, uh, through some of the muddy waters and, um, and I, I went to the reception and printed them up and, and woke Larry up in his hotel room and a cup of coffee and the lyrics for the day. And, you know, the song finished itself the day we had to record it. Um, you know, other things have taken, a, can, can sometimes take up to a, a year or two years of sitting in a drawer. Um, something else, you know, can take, uh, get out of my way, which is one of the, the tunes on the, uh, on the album I wrote uh, before breakfast over a, 15 minute 20 minute period okay um, the day that we were the day that we recorded that so so they, they all vary you know like i say like children and children uh, they decide how they're going to be born it's not now, up to us 
you know, I, I, I look at lyrics and melody as two different functions. Um, uh-huh. You know, me- lyrics are, are more of a craft where you have a very um, structured kind of thing to deal with. Because you have to have a story, the continuity to that story. Uh, you need to have, you know, rhyme and meter. But melody is different. Some songwriters like to work off the groove. Others like chord structure. And then others just take the cadence of the lyric and allow that to dictate where it should go. What is mm-hmm. kind of your go-to when you look for your melodies? Uh, emotion, raw emotion. Normally, that's the one thing that I'll write in the midst of whatever's going on that needs to be expressed. Um, and musically, the, 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 the musical bit's normally like a, a guttural expression of whatever it is I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having to express or I'll explode. Um, and that's then what I, I like to sit on a little bit so I can look at it object- objectively when I when I come down to really figuring out lyrically how I want to represent the song. Um, but the musical side of it tends to just come from, as a, it's an expletive generally with me. <laughs> um, it's something that has to be said. Um, so it's, it's always on the back of genuine emotion. Okay. Now, you know, a lot of songwriters have embraced technology as tools in their writing, whether it's their cell phone or they have a home recording studio. What are some of the tools that are in your toolbox that you find indispensable when you sit down to write? Um, I've always been really retro. I mean, I've always shied at even, you know, guitars and amps. I've always been really old fashioned. Um, So... You know, writing for me was always scribbling on, on bits of paper um, and finding bits of paper to scrib- scribble on if, if something takes you and, and you and you you know you need to document it. Um, obviously, the advent of cell phones has meant that we've all got a dictaphone now. Um, I used to have a dictaphone before cell phones came in, and, and then I'd find that invariably I'd be leaving it places and forgetting all about it, yeah. <laughs> um, and not taking it out with me, or losing it, or you know, breaking it, running out of batteries. Um, uh, and then looking for a napkin to scribble on the back of. Um, so cell phones invaluable because every single every single idea I have, uh, if I feel it, 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 it's worth documenting. And there's so much that ends up in the in the you know that's edited out and goes to the trash can before it ever goes to the phone. Um, but it could be anything from you know a, a song that's pretty much just written itself in its entirety immediately, or it could be a riff or it could be a chorus hook or it could be a song concept or an idea that I'd like to explore or something lyrical. Um, and then I find myself having to try and decipher what it was I meant the night before at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and go through my gobbledygook and figure out what it was that I wanted to say. Um, but yeah, you know, even to the point of singing to myself in the bathroom in the middle of the night, uh, if necessary, <laughs> which, which no one wants to hear, I can assure you. <laughs> well, you know, um, Every songwriter has to get to that point where they put the pen down and give the song to the band, the producer, and and move it into the studio. I mean, you know, and I know a song is never really done. It's, you know, the the old adage is you don't finish a song, you just abandon it. Um, But, you know, you got to get to that point where you can move it from, you know, your writing from your pad. What do you do to determine when a song is ready to go to that next stage? Um, I tend to, whilst writing a song, um, come up with a relatively defined image in my in my mind of, of what I need to hear in order for the song to be represented properly. 
there, there, there's normally uh, certain defined factors that, that allow me to to find the rest <laughs> the rest of the, of the process a little bit um, yeah, um, a little bit easier um, because I already kind of know what it is as, as I'm looking for. Um, the real trick I've over the years of making the, the experience more pleasurable and uh, and, <laughs> and in, in many senses it's sucking any potential neurosis out of the situation as you're panically trying to um, uh, represent something that only you can hear in your head is working with folks who really really understand you who understand your gobbledygook you um, who it doesn't take too long for them to hear what's going on in your head when you explain it to them okay um, and, and working with the music the kind of musicians who you know stylistically uh, from the musical personalities uh, are gonna um, automatically respond to the songs with um, uh, in, a, in a certain way um, that corresponds with what you can hear in your head it's that really it's it's, uh, it's you know working with the right folks um, and understanding who gets you and who doesn't and trying to make that judgment call as quickly as possible whenever you're working with new musicians okay now um Let's talk a little bit about the lineup. Who's playing on this? Um, it's uh, Mark Teixeira on drums. Uh, it's, it's mainly uh, you know, Duke Robillard's band, okay. um, who are all very, very, very old friends. Um, very similar lineup to a previous album that Duke produced for me um, at the same studio a few years ago called Porchlight, um, which is pretty much the same rhythm section. Um, keyboards except for the bassist it was uh, Jesse Williams on Porchlight um, who's now working with uh, the North uh, Mississippi All-Stars um, and uh, we, we had Brad Hallen on uh, on bass on this, on this record um, who was Duke's uh, subsequent bass player but uh, yeah Mark Texera on drums Brad Hallen on, on bass uh, the phenomenal Bruce Bears on piano and Hammond organ um, and then uh, an assembly of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of horn players, um, effectively, uh, including Doug James, who was on both records that he produced um, on baritone sax. Um, who's uh, another colourful, colourful old character who I've known for, for many, many years. Um, but yeah, it's a. Uh, um, this time around, I'm duetting with Larry McRae. Um, there's a duet with uh, Sugar Ray Norseer, who I never worked with before, but um, I've always loved and adored uh, from his time, uh, you know, with uh, with Ronnie Earl and and, uh, and Rumful at one point. Um, and it was a, a, a joyful, a joyful, very easy, uh, <laughs> painless, simple experience um, because the characters really on, on the album were just right and. Uh, and I wrote those songs, you know, with, with many of them in mind. Okay. Now, you know, um, we have been in this digital revolution now for a little over 20 years, and it has redefined the music industry several times. Um, one of the things that has come out of this is that the consumer now looks at streaming as a way to consume music. And, you know, let's face it, we're not going to change that consumer's perception because it's a great deal for them. You know, for the price of a, a single CD, they've got access to pretty much every recorded uh, music um, from the last hundred years. So for them, it's, it's, an, it's a win-win. 
But the problem is, is they don't look at recorded music anymore as a product to purchase. How has mm-hmm. this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Um, me and every other artist on the planet. Um, it's um, it's a new paradigm, which I, to a certain degree I think takes most uh, most musicians back to the minstrel days. It's um, recording music has little value, um, but celebrity has value, and therefore the one percent who is selling the most, um, they're making really uh, their cash nowadays. Instagram endorsements and stuff like this um, on the back of you know, sponsorships, on the back of the celebrity, and you know their music is there to to fuel their celebrity, which is what's really making them their money. Right. Um, so it's kind of you know it takes us all back to minstrel days because the rest of the ninety nine percent. Um, you know, are in very, very different shoes altogether. And it's it's scary in terms of what it does culturally, um, how uh, every other subgenre, aside from, you know, mainstream pop and mainstream hip-hop, um, what happens to them? What happens to the world of blues, jazz, reggae, um, classical music, chamber music, you know, I mean, every style of music under the sun that uh, sits there as a, sub, as a non-commercial subgenre, you know. Um... And if that diminishes um, or isn't, you know, represented formally you know, for, for the years to come, but, uh, you know, what happens to it? Uh, what happens to its importance and its relevance within society? Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a cultural protectionist to a certain certain degree. I think, you know, we, we should always find ways of uh, perpetuating and, and reminding people of the cultural significance of, of things that, that don't sell millions and millions and millions. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it, it's scary. You know, it's scary. It's, um, but it's not up to you know, it's not up to us any individually to to be able to fix. Uh, everyone has to find a way around it and carry on being creative and carrying on um, doing their jobs as artists, which is you know trying to reflect society back to itself um, and do it as as honestly as possible. Now, you had mentioned um, the fact that um, the the big artists, that one percent really is is capitalizing on their celebrity and one of the things that really became apparent when the pandemic hit is that a lot of independent artists started to gravitate towards you know going online the internet doing live streams working their social media and some artists started to realize that that sense of celebrity that almost reality show mentality translated really well into social media marketing where they started to expose their fans to who they were as people what their life was like started to share things almost like a reality show um Mm -hmm. how have you negotiated this world of, of content creation and social media marketing you know in promoting your music um, <laughs> that's a complicated question. Um, look, I'm I'm very still I'm still recoiling um, at the premise that we're living in times when musicians, um, in order to be able to um, not even just to, to survive, but but new kids on, off the block to get from first to second base, have to do that on their own, and they've got to be self marketeers. They've got to understand the web. They've got to um, get involved in so many technical processes. Um, that all of these things that extend so far outside the realms of, of artistry, of writing songs, delivering the songs, recording them, singing them, 
and, uh, and passionately doing stuff live and connecting with audiences and doing the job of, of an artist. Um, and these things are all kind of contrary to that. You know, they suck up a lot of, of mental energy and headspace that traditionally would have been thrown over to the artistry side of the fence. So it scares me and, and worries me that there are all kinds of all-time greats that we've all been inspired by and influenced by over um, over the centuries who um, who would never have happened under the remit of today's music industry, where you've got to be a jack-of-all-trades. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so some of the great lunatics of, <laughs> historically um, who provided us some of our best art, um, you know, would never have, you know, we'd have never have heard of. Um, if they had been expected to to be great self marketeers, so it's something that I it's a, it's a, it's a subject that I'm you know I'm passionate about, but um, very much as a, <laughs> you know I'm holding up my cross to the vampire. Um, it's it's uh, something that you know takes away from the the, the uh, it sucks away from the integrity of, of, of the music business, um, and it's sad. But it's a sad once again. It's a sad. Uh, you know, actuality, there's nothing we can do about it, so we have to do our best. Um, during the pandemic, when the crisis hit and people were, were doing uh, exactly what you were saying, um, I was struck by a, um, a strange sense of, of compulsion that, uh, to make sure that there was one band under one roof, um, and that everyone had uh, professional experience of working with big names individually. Um, so for recording purposes and for, for streaming purposes, um, you know, we could be made use of um, and facilitate as many needs as possible. Um, and on the, the streaming side of the fence, the responsibility to, I mean, we've all, anyone who's played in bands for, for a while and, and done this for a long time, um, will share the same, um, the, the same, same experience. Um, the numerous fans out there who don't have wives and kids or, or, or friend circles who are maybe possibly sometimes slightly on the spectrum um, who the way of the live music um, that they imbibe through the course of their lives um, is the, the, the communion with the rest of humanity it's what connects them to us and makes them feel connected um, and uh, you know the folks who, who will four, five, six, seven nights a week be out there looking um, you know, sucking up uh, live music for those purposes. It's a necessity, certainly. It's a social necessity to many. Um, and all of a sudden, that had folded, you know, the moment the crisis hit and, and everyone was, you know, back home, single guy in front of a fireplace with a guitar um, or a piano, um, and there was no ensemble music, jamming, spontaneity, uh, any of that going on. So, so I decided to put together, a, I put together a lockdown project um, straight away and um, pulled a band together um, and of course, I need uh, I needed somewhere I could house the project where we'd have enough space for wives, kids, dogs, families. We had no idea how many months we were going to have to be living together, a bunch of strangers, effectively. Uh, I mean, the bassist is Jules Holland's bassist, uh, Dave Swift, who um, had debt uh, in my band a couple of times. But, but other than that, we didn't really know each other terribly well. Um, and. Uh, realized I needed somewhere very big so found um, uh, some mansions who were prepared to nominate uh, negotiate a nominal rent with me and then I had to find someone to capitalize the project and get some businesses on board and bring some recording jobs on board and uh, do the PR and figure out the technicals and, and do all of this on my own um, and I spent six months living in a mansion in, in two mansions in a row in Norfolk with 
a bunch of musicians and their and their other halves. Um, and yeah, it was a, a big contrast to, to most other experiences of that first year of the pandemic. Okay. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there an Indie Blues double shot from your new release. You guys out there, you're going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun.
hit the floor and then I saw you melt that
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. 